Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. Or, if you're listening on the Apple Podcasts app, you can subscribe within the app in just a few clicks. Right, lads. Now, I know there's not a faint heart among you, and I know you're as anxious as I am to get into close action. Do you want to see a guillotine in Piccadilly? Do you want to call that raggedy-ass Napoleon your king? Do you want your children to sing the Marseillaise? England is under threat of invasion, and though we be on the far side of the world, this podcast is our home. This podcast is England. So as every hand to his rope or gun quicks the word and sharps the action, after all Tom Holland, history is on our side. Now that was, of course, Russell Crowe, as Captain Jack Aubrey in the film Master and Commander, adapted from the novels of Patrick O'Brien. And Tom Holland, would you agree that that film, as a portrait of French history, is right up there with The Pink Panther Strikes Again? I knew you were going to mention Inspector Clouseau. This is what I was expecting. Because, so today we are doing a history of France in 10 films. And Dominic, you, um, you, you messaged me and said you got a brilliant introduction. And a world-class, a world-class introduction. And I knew it was going to feature Clouseau. <laughs> right. And it did, if only obliquely. Very obliquely. Um, but you didn't expect Captain Jack Aubrey, did you? My superb Russell Crowe voice. <sighs> yeah, you know, some bloke with rope. You always try and bring him in. <laughs> right. So, but anyway, Tom, um, films in France, are they're kind of synonymous, aren't they, in the Anglo-Saxon imagination? Um, France is one of the great homes of, of cinema. And actually, films are a really fun way to think about French history. Don't you agree? Oui, absolument. I, I'm looking forward to the, the deployment of your French accent <laughs> in, this, uh, in this podcast. So, Tom, we have with us the film critic Muriel Zaga, who uh, has written and broadcasted um, widely about French cinema. And Muriel, uh, bienvenue. Thank you for joining us. Um, you presumably do want to see a guillotine in Piccadilly, uh, but we'll gloss over that. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so France, the home of cinema. Do you think is that fair to say? I mean, American listeners would be outraged by this, but do you think would you you would call France the home of cinema? Well, that's yes, that's a long-running dispute whether Americans invented cinema or the French. I'm going to say the French did. I'm going to say French cinema is almost sort of pleonastic, you know. Um, but I would say that, wouldn't I? And it, it, but partly because I think the French take cinema seriously. It's 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 entertainment for everyone, but it is also an art form. So perhaps that's why they own it. We own, own it. it. Golly, that's a that's a claim, isn't it, Tom? Um, so so do you think? I mean, here in England, we often say uh, people learn more about history from Hollywood films. I mean, terrible Hollywood films often than they do through the written word. Is that true in France as well? I don't know. I mean, that's a, the huge question: is whether history can uh, can actually be taught through film. Uh, it's people certainly um, confirm their national narrative through watching films. So perhaps 
things they've been taught at school are then reinforced in on 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 the screen um the teaching of history is changing in france that's another thing of course is that sometimes sometimes for the younger generation possibly they will learn about uh, absolutely essential events of french history through film or television for the first time because these things simply won't have been so, covered at school yeah and so we it's have important. asked you to compile a history of france through 10 films <laughs> which is a very very tough ask <laughs> and i and you've I thank you for this nightmarish challenge. So um, I'm very much looking forward to you choosing uh, Asterix and Obelix as your first choice. So I'm assuming that will be your first choice. Will it? (laughs) It's it's not my first choice because, uh, well, okay, several reasons. Uh, The the books are better. The books are better than the film adaptation. adaptation. So really, you're better off reading and rereading the books, which are very rich and very well historically informed. In terms of early French history or history of the Gaulois, there isn't a whole lot of uh, films to pick from, partly because it's still a very obscure part of our history. Uh, and also, my contention is that it's because the French have an inferiority complex because of the Romans, because the Romans are so crushingly glamorous on film. And it's in- very difficult for Hirsute uh, Gauls to yes. compete with that. So I'm just going to start with a counterexample. I mean, an example of how not to do a French historical film about that period. It's unkind to talk about it, but at the same time, it's worth mentioning. There was, in the early 2000s, a film about Vercingetorix, the chieftain of the Arvernians, is that what we call them, the Arvernians? And um, this starred Christophe Lambert. Oh, dear. Yes, I know. No, exactly. (laughs) Yes, oh, dear. So there is a thing. it's, it's, It's awful, really. There's a thing called the Golden Bidet. <laughs> so appropriately, the opposite of a César, I guess. Exactly, yeah. exactly right, <laughs> exactly right. So this film garnered three of those, one for the film, worst film, one for worst director, and I won't mention his name, it's kinder. I really want and to And one for it. worst actor. Christophe Lambert <laughs> can take it. Well, it, you can find it on YouTube, so go, go and have a you know, fun afternoon. There's it's, no way you could have a film about Vercingetorix winning a César, so I, I think that that is it, Well, that's, that's the reasonable. thing. So the problem with the film is, microscopic budget, very, I mean, huge ambition, but no writing, the acting is terrible, everything, just inexplicable facial hair. It's a very hirsute, (laughs) hairy film. Anyway, so this is the problem, is that uh, doing historical reconstitutions costs a lot of money, and by and large, French directors and producers don't have access to Hollywood-style budgets. So I think you can only tackle early or early-ish French history if you have a sort of minimalist sensibility. Like uh, Robert Bresson, for example, who who did make a film about Joan of Arc. Though I'm not going to talk about him. I'm going to talk about another film about Joan of Arc. So we are going to leap in seven league boots right over Clovis, Charlemagne, everybody, and go straight to Joan of Arc because she is really the first figure, I think, really to crystallize national identity up to the present day. So she remains a really important foundational figure. And it is fitting that she's a woman because, of course, the Republic is a woman, Liberté, Égalité, Fraternité, Marianne, all of these are potentially female allegories. Dominic, I've never heard of her, have we, Dominic? <laughs> never, never, never. 
can't believe the French tried to pass themselves <laughs> off as the champions of liberty, Tom. It's unbelievable. <laughs> no, anyway, go on, Muriel. So the, Don't let us put you off. There have been... <laughs> no, never. Never. Keep going. There have been many, many films about Joan of Arc, understandably, because she's a... I mean, it's a overused word, but she's an iconic figure, obviously, that lends itself herself to, to screen treatment. She's been played by many famous actresses. The film I've chosen, I like particularly because it has some of those qualities of simplicity and austerity that I think are needed if you're going to try and evoke the Middle Ages on screen without a lot of money. So this is a film that was made by Jacques Rivette. Jacques Rivette is one of the directors who made his name with the Nouvelle Vague. And he worked all his life. He died recently, a few years ago. And this is a film he made in the 90s, starring an actress called Sandrine Bonner in the part of Joan. So it's a two-part epic. It's very long. It's five hours long, I think. Uh, so a bit of a commitment, you know, if our listeners are thinking of watching it, you can watch it in bits, of course. You don't have to watch it all at once. It's in two parts. It's called Joan the Maid, the Battles. And then the second part is Joan the Maid, the Prisons. And so it follows the whole arc of her journey. And what I like about it is, I suppose, it's Nouvelle Vague qualities. That's to say, lots of natural light, lots of natural settings, lots of movement, uh, and almost a sort of Western quality. So she's almost like Calamity Joan. She's she's often riding, riding through these medieval French wilderness, immense sort of plains. Uh, and the, the the battle scenes are minimal, are minimal, are done with minimal number of actors, but they feel a little bit uh -huh. like the the, the 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 storming of Fort Apache. There is a, a really kinetic quality in the film and also some very beautiful dramatic monologues to camera because it is a little bit experimental. So that's that by Joan and, and some other some other characters. And, and Muriel, how do how do they how does he do the um the visions, the angels? Ah, okay, very interesting. I know I know why you're yes. Uh, so he doesn't. He doesn't do the visions, and that might be disappointing for you and uh, other people. He, what he does instead is it's all internalized because Bonaire is such an amazing performer. So she has a face that has it all in terms of Joan of Arc, I think. She has uh, severity, purity, determination, courage, you know, all of that. But she also looks a little bit uh, sort of a lit from within. And so the, she talks about her visions and she talks about being from God and having direct contact with God, which of course is why she's a heretic in the eyes of the church. But you don't see the visions. You, you know of them. Everybody knows of yeah. them. So you have to imagine, you have to sort of join the dots in your head and imagine what's going on in, in her head. The, the spiritual, uh, dimension of her story is, 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 is only under the surface. It's for you to, Fill in, and is it is it quite a so it's quite a recent film, but is it as patriotic as it were as previous renditions of the story of Joan of Arc? Would you say, so that, or, or is it more revisionist? So that's as it interesting. Were? Yes, in some ways, it's not openly revisionist. What it's doing, I think, is is reclaiming her from the the side that had taken possession of her at the time in the nineties, which was the National Front. So Joan. There's yeah. a tug of war throughout yeah. French history, starting in the 19th century, more or less, but between, say, uh, the anti-clerical Republicans on the one side and the uh, royalist monarchists on the other. So uh, both parties are trying to claim Joan for themselves. Then there comes a point where she becomes a really a Republican, a Republican heroine. Then she is a central figure uh, under the Vichy regime. She's reclaimed by Vichy. Uh, then again, the the 
Communist Party reclaim her as a sort of resistance figure after the war, you know, all of this goes on. And then Le Pen claims her uh, in the 60s, 70s, and she becomes associated with the National Front. And so I think what Rivette is doing, Rivette is a man of the left, broadly speaking, as most of those Nouvelle Vague directors are, is reclaiming her for the mainstream and saying she's she has no political colour. She is a heroine for everyone. So, Muriel, the, re- uh, the most recent Joan of Arc film I saw was by uh, Bruno Dumont, <laughs> who is a kind of enfant terrible, isn't he? Did, did, did you see that? <laughs> The, the Joan of Arc film. I didn't see the film. I saw the the clip you sent me. <laughs> I know. So it's in English, the children, the, the childhood of Joan of Arc, and you talked about um, the need to do, to do films on budgets. This, I mean, this must have cost about, I should think, thirty seven euros to film. <laughs> I mean, it is it's it's a girl wandering around a load of sandbanks, and um, it's very very odd. And the music, it, it's kind of it's a musical basically. Um, and I just wanted to play, I don't know whether we're allowed to do this, whether we'll get in trouble with the copyright, but this is a sequence where Joan of Arc is, uh, she's a little girl, she's walking up a sandbank, and suddenly these two nuns appear and start talking to her about the nature of Christ. So, uh, can you hear that? It's, are the nuns associated with Guns and Roses or something? It, it, it's weirdly effective. But kind of like nothing I've ever seen before, and um, I, 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 well, I can't quite, re- I quite recommend it. Uh, I watched Tom. If the budget really was thirty-seven euros, you're very unlikely to be harassed by their lawyers. That. <laughs> That's probably I mean. true, uh, and it's worth it also for the for the for Joan's vision of um, Saint Michael and the two saints, which is excellent. <laughs> I won't. I won't do any spoilers. <laughs> yes. How are the um, How are the English portrayed in Jean La Pucelle, um, Muriel? Are they Are they villainous and? Um, is it a Hollywood style portrait? Yes, no, they are they are they are utterly villainous. So they're called uh, les godons, I think was the word, the medieval word that the French used at the time, which is a bit like the Hun for the you know the, the Germans um, during a, a different war. They are cruel, uh, sadistic, coarse, beyond belief, um, really no redeeming features so- at all. Plus a change. Oh, this sounds like a terrible. <laughs> <film>. <laughs> they will boycott that. So, so that's Joan of Arc. So, uh, what what is number two on your list? So, number two. Again, we are leaping because we need to. We're leaping to the wars of religion and La Reine Margot. Ah, yes. Which I think, oh, yes. yes. Isabella so Jani. Yes. 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 Um, so this is an early 90s movie. They are actually both from around the same time, the, uh, the Joan of Arc and, the, and La Reine Margot, which is, La Reine Margot is based on the novel by Alexandre Dumas uh, called La Reine Margot. And he, of course, also wrote The Three Musketeers, which is perhaps a, a novel that would be better known uh, in England. Yeah. So it's really more an adaptation of the novel than, than a serious piece of historical yeah. research. But that makes it really fun because it's a really revolutionary yeah. take on the historical but, but, movie. So, so in a sense, it's a, it's, an, it's a film about the 19th century as well as about the 16th century. Would that be fair? That's the thing is that there are endless layers wherever you look because, you know, you can't, everything is always, it has a context of its own. It's looking back at different versions. It's a revision of something that came before. So yes, uh, it's, it's based on all kinds of 19th century uh, ideas about uh, Marguerite uh, de Valois. Uh, so we get everything, you know. In a way, <laughs> what it resembles mostly, or foreshadows, is Game of Thrones. Because, 
it is very sexy and very violent. It's very gory. And there is nudity, which of course you'd expect in a French film. But even then it was, it was pushing, pushing the boundaries. And so Mar Margot is represented with all the sort of legends associated with her rather than facts. That's to say she's an infomaniac. She has probably uh, incestuous relationships with her brothers. Uh, and then in a famous final scene, which is lifted from Stendhal's um, The Scarlet and the Black, actually it's mentioned in that novel, in a romantic final image, she sits with her lover's severed head, bloody, bleeding, severed head in her lap. And that's, that's the last we see of her. And all those things are probably completely invented. And uh, some people say Protestant propaganda. You know, there are things that are featured. Well, in Dominic's a big fan of Protestant propaganda. I'm all about Protestant propaganda on this podcast. <laughs> So, so for those listeners who don't know, it's set in the late 16th century, and it's the period when um, Catholics and Protestants are kind of fighting for control of France. And I guess one of the centerpieces is the massacre of St. Bartholomew's Day, which even people who don't know much French history will probably have very vaguely heard of um, when it's the Huguenots who get massacred, isn't it? Mm, it is. Um, and, and is there any, I mean, this is a pretty, a pretty dumb question, I suppose, but... Um, is there any sort of do, do these things have any traction in France now? I mean, do people care at all about the the wars of religion and the Huguenots and and all that kind of thing, or is it just ancient history? A little bit of both. It's very remote. I mean, I do remember, for example, from my own days in primary school, being taught about the what's called the Massacre de la Saint-Barthélemy, French, and I don't think I knew really then what Protestants were. You know, it, it was very abstract. So I think unless, and that's probably still true nowadays, that unless you are a French Protestant, because there are some left, not very many, but there are, there are mm. some, and still some very powerful families, uh, then then you will probably feel, feel the episode quite viscerally. The majority of people have probably forgotten that there ever was a serious challenge to Catholicism in France, I wasn't, think, um, a serious Calvinist challenge. Lionel yeah. uh, Jospin was a Protestant, wasn't he? Why I think Michel right? Rocard was also was a right. Protestant. Yes, and people that, always mentioned yeah, it. People did say, oh, Rocard, who of course is a Protestant, you know, as if yeah. uh, <laughs> right. but somehow it meant But they're something. not still called Huguenot? No. Okay. No. So that scene, the scene, the massacre scene, because it's very Game of Thrones, is incredibly hair-raising and dreadful. So it does actually bring yeah. home just how horrible, bloodthirsty, grisly, barbaric the whole thing was. And there are afterwards, and the aftermath in a way is worse. It's yeah. piles of naked bodies on carts, just horrific. Uh I, I saw that film about thirty years ago. I hadn't really thought of it till you I, till you brought it up. Mm -hmm. And I have to say, I mean, maybe some listeners won't be surprised to hear this, but all the nudity, the intense violence, I thought it was absolutely brilliant. <laughs> I <really> enjoyed it. <laughs> um, mind you, I like well, Game of Thrones. You know, so. I, I saw it. I saw. I I'd done it for um, for A level, so I was very disappointed. <laughs> I, I felt that it was historically inaccurate. Oh, Tom. It absolutely ruined Tom. it for me. So uh, I, well, must listen, go, I must go back and give it another go. I suspect you'll be very pleased with Muriel's third choice because I know what that is. And so uh, do it's I. a film that you love, Tom. It is. Yeah. I think it's the single best historical film ever made. Wow. Well, I, yes, it's, uh, it's very strong. So this is Ridicule. Um, which presumably was released here as ridicule. Yes, they came as the same. Yes, it was. <laughs> ridicule. <laughs> yes, and by Patrice Lecomte, 
And that is, again, a 1990s movie. So people will say I'm favoring the 1990s, but I've, I've tried to be even-handed in terms of the kinds of films and the quality, you know, having sort of constant quality. So Ridicule is, is brilliant. Ridicule is um, a sort of comedy of historical comedy of manners and, and yeah. drama uh, set at court in Versailles. So this is uh, towards the end of the Ancien Régime under the reign of Louis the Sixteenth. Although actually we barely see the king, we catch a glimpse of Marie Antoinette, but it's not about them. It's about the courtiers and what goes on in those circles at court. So the the main character is a young nobleman from the provinces uh, called uh, Grégoire Ponce Ludon de Malavoie, <laughs> which I think <laughs> name, say crazy name, an, crazy guy, <laughs> <laughs> an outlandish name yeah. because he is from the <laughs> from yeah. the backwaters, and he is um, enlightened young no- nobleman who's also a scientist, a budding scientist. He comes from a so where where his sort of fief is is a very insalubrious marshy region, yeah. and he wants to drain the swamp. In order to uh, lengthen the, you know, the longevity of his peasantry, so he rides to Versailles in essentially a single shot to see the king, to seek audience with the king, and get some funding for his project. And when he gets to Versailles, he discovers, and it is explained to him that you can't just see the king just like that. You have to, you have to catch his eye. And the way to catch the king's eye is by being a celebrated wit. So he has to. Uh, make as many uh, coruscating witticisms in the presence of the other courtiers, compete with the other courtiers in this kind of jousts of, of wit. Uh, puns don't count, very importantly. Yeah. You can't just... And it, it has to be... I think uh, it's something... There's the French word, which is persiflage. Persiflage is a sort of ongoing um, banter, uh, often malicious... Yeah. And witty, and that's that's what he because needs to access. That, that's what we have on this podcast. Well, they, 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 they have a joke. I mean, it's a joke, isn't it? That that there is actually no translation between the English and the French words. It's a, a joke that kind of you know the film <laughs> always a, ends with that joke. Yes, there's a great scene where one uh, nobleman. This is in a woman's salon somewhere in Versailles. One nobleman has just returned from England, and they, someone says, "Do they have wit?" There. And he says, "No, no, not really. They have they have something called humor, humor." <laughs> yeah. And then he tries to explain what it is, and it falls completely flat. Yeah. Yeah. But actually, the, the the last scene of the film has a, a lovely uh, little trait d'esprit um, uttered by an Englishman, which is about. Um, it's better to lose your hat than to lose your head. You yeah. know, so carry on, yeah. don't lose your head. Yeah. Ah, uh, so, right. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I've been here a very long time. <laughs> but it is a beautiful film. And again, uh, in, I mean, it, as with La Reine Margot, but differently, it sort of shatters the expectations you might have of a yeah. historical drama because it's very impolite. Um, it's rude, you know, and uh, and at the same time, it's incredibly sophisticated. It's just a wonderful it's, alliance. I, of things. I, so I said, I think this is the best historical film ever made. And I think the reason I think that is that it makes drama out of a completely different way of understanding the world. The rituals of Versailles, the, um, as you say, these kind of duels of wit, that is something that only makes sense in that specific historical circumstance. And it's not about kind of importing our standards and imposing them on the past, as so many history films are. And I, I have, I've watched it lots of times, and I, I, think, it is abs- I think it's absolutely superb. 
Um, and there, there is one brilliant moment, particularly brilliant moment, is that there's an abbe who is a kind of Voltairean um, priest who uh, is absolute master of wit. <laughs> and he gives a, a kind of brilliant sermon and the king applauds him and all, you know, the whole court are in raptures. And then he says that I will demonstrate that God doesn't exist. And at that, suddenly you can hear a pin drop and he realizes he's gone too far. And it's such a brilliant, brilliant moment. And, you know, as you said, it's also about the revolution because that sequence at the end where where the where where, where the uh, the exile is standing on the the white cliffs of dover with the englishman you know he's he's gone into exile because of the revolution but um our hero is now you know citoyen whatever he is and has managed to drain to drain the to drain the, the swamp yes. drain the swamp mm. well your next film uh, muriel does feature the French Revolution, doesn't it? Um, and it also features uh, that raggedy ass that I uh, referred to at the very beginning in the introduction. So this is Boney. I mean, we couldn't do a podcast about French films without talking about Napoleon, I think. So but this is a silent film, isn't it? It is a silent film. So it's the famous uh, Napoleon by Abel Gans. Uh, which is, I think, 1923 or 27, perhaps, a little bit later, 1920s film. (laughs) It's an amazing project. Um, Gans wanted to make a... It's very long. Again, I've chosen quite a few long films that people can pick and choose. Uh, This is five and a half hours long. And it's only a fragment because actually what Gans wanted to make (laughs) was five times as much as that. He wanted to make a six-part epic, biopic, complete biopic, up to and including St. Helena's. And uh, of course, what he did because of the sort of artist that he was is he blew his budget, his entire budget on the first <laughs> We've part. all been there. <laughs> <laughs> and then ran out of money. But in a way, the fact that it's a fragment is part of the charm because it's a young Bonaparte. He hasn't been corrupted by hubris yet. He's not become the emperor yet. There is a sort of field of possibilities, you know, and more romantic idealism attached to the film because we don't get what came later. And and Dominic, you'll be very pleased to know that Nelson appears in it. So um I, I've never I've watched the so I I've seen kind of fragments, I think. How, is that possible that the fragments exist? How yeah, does the no, whole film so still I, exist? So I will tell yeah. you I will tell you what happened because I met the person who I interviewed him who who put all these various fragments together again. It was a man called Kevin Brownlow. Oh, he's a very well-known. Yes, as a very young man, directed uh, the film "It Happened Here" about the a, a Nazi occupation of Britain, and he was devoted to this. And he, you know, it became his great lifelong project to to piece this film together. And it's still not entirely complete, but it's pretty much so. And um, I, I went and, and, and interviewed him, talked about the project, and saw it, it was screened in the um, I think in uh, National Film Theatre or no, it's the Festival Hall actually, and they had a full-blown orchestra, and the climax yeah. of it is that what has, for most of the film, is it's it's a single screen. At the end, suddenly you have three screens. <laughs> and it's it's like in Beethoven's Ninth, when suddenly people start singing. You know, it's so unexpected. Yeah. And it's... It, but that was, that was groundbreaking, wasn't it? When they, they the, the triptych or whatever, Muriel, that was, that yes. was I, I'm presumably impossible to do in most cinemas. I think so. Uh, I think that you have to be in a specially equipped uh, auditorium. Yes, it was incredibly groundbreaking. And triptych is the right word because there is a religious dimension to the whole enterprise. Um, so what's exciting about the triptych is that 
lots of different things are happening simultaneously. Uh, you get a real sense of epic uh, destiny, you know, uh, being uh, unfolding before your very eyes. Why I say religious d- dimension is because there is, of course, a cult of Napoleon in, in France. There was while he was alive, and then especially perhaps after he died, where he became a sort of martyr and secular saint, really, in the French imagination. Though, again, I'm not sure that that's still with us. But martyred it- by the English again. <laughs> yes. And and certainly uh, Gans uh, very much uh, channels that. So he saw the, the project as a sort of act of resurrection. And he talks about Napoleon as a, I think he says a sort of, uh, um, a to- uh, what is it, radioactive heir to Christ. You know, his Napoleon on screen is going to fulfill Christ's Republican mission, you know. Christ's famous Republican mission. (laughs) (laughs) He's going to complete it. So there's a lot of, uh, you might say, idolatry there on the part of Goss. And and and, and actually, the images, Brownlow made the most amazing act of reconstitution, historical remembering of this film. It's a beautiful evergreen movie. It's worth watching in its entirety, but even a fragment will give you a sense of the, the beauty of the images. It's absolutely beautiful. Didn't Stanley Kubrick want to want to make a He did. He was absolutely a, a passionate about, about doing Napoleon. a new version of uh, yes. Napoleon. But he didn't get very far. Is that right, uh, Muriel? Uh, I don't I know think, how much you know about Kubrick's Napoleon. Yes, I think it's one of the great unrealised projects. Am I right in thinking it was going to be Jack Nicholson? I think so, yes. I think oh, so. Would, yeah. So you can imagine yeah. what that would have been like. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so, um, so that's Napoleon. Um, and then what, what is number five? I assume it's, um, well, it's, I, I, I know because you sent the list, but it's, I'm very disappointed. <laughs> so we, we're now moving into the 19th century, but I'm very disappointed yes. to see that it's not Les Miserables. So Dominic, <sighs> Dominic mentioned Russell Crowe at the top. Yeah. Immortal performance of Javert. In Russell Crowe's <laughs> beautiful voice. It, it, partly that's it. I think <clears throat> for me, there is always a slight problem with suspension of disbelief when something is supposed to be a, a historical French drama and then people walk in and say, hello, my name is Capitaine Javert or something, you know, and then you go, I'm not sure that I can really go And then they start singing. I mean, that's even... And then they start singing. <laughs> <laughs> On bridges. <laughs> and then there are angels in trees and it all, yes. So this, uh, the, my fifth choice is uh, Les Enfants du Paradis. Uh, Children of Paradise, I think it's called, which is um, a film by Marcel Carnet. <clears throat> and that was made under the German occupation and released at the time of the liberations. It was made, say, in the mid-1940s. And so again, uh, that is a part of the historical context, isn't it? The difficulty of making the film, presumably. Yes, the under- difficulty of making the film under very difficult strictures from, uh, from the Nazis uh, and from Vichy, of course. As certain people not being allowed to work because they were Jewish or, you know, or communists or whatever. So there were lots of, uh, most of the film was shot in the uh, free zone in studios in Nice, where uh, some extraordinary outdoor sets were built. So the, the action takes place, it's the Paris of Balzac, really. So it takes place mostly under Louis-Philippe, let's say, 1830s. And it's about that old Paris, so the Paris before Houseman's Paris. Yeah. 
and yeah. centers around what's called what was then called Boulevard du Crime, the Crime Boulevard, which was not called that because it was lots, it was you know a very dangerous place, but because it was a place where a lot of theaters showed um, melodramas, gory, sensational melodramas, and also pantomimes. So the film is about the the, the world of the theater. Uh, the title refers the children of paradise are the, um, the poorest people who can't afford expensive theater seats and who can only afford the ones at the very top of the theater. So it's it, like in English, the gods. The gods, exactly. Yeah. And who are the, the people who bring atmosphere to any performance because they're the people who heckle and laugh and shout things and boo and hiss, all of that. So it's about the sort of, uh, interwoven destinies of a group of characters who are all in some ways connected to the theatre, really primarily, and centres around a woman called Garance, who is a performer um, and also just a, a pretty Parisian woman. So when we first see her, she's promenading on the Boulevard du Crime, which no longer exists. The Boulevard du Crime is a nickname that was given to a Boulevard du Temple, which no longer exists as it was because that place of promenade and theatres and popular entertainment is gone. It's been replaced by other boulevards and perspectives. But was that replaced by Houseman? By Houseman. So that was Houseman knocked all that away. Yes, yes. So it's, you can't visit it, but you can go back in the amazing time machine of Les Enfants du Paradis. It is the most extraordinary super production in terms of uh, French cinema. I think the, that set alone, the boulevard set, which, can, which contains trompe elements, cost five million francs which at the time is absolutely pharaonic sum. And so but this, is, this is during the Second World War and the occupation. So it must have been challenging to raise the money. And what, to what extent does the circumstance of the occupation provide context, if any, for, 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 for the content of the film? Um, so in terms of raising the... Raising the, fin the finance, yes, it would have been difficult, but at the same time, uh, filmmakers were encouraged under Vichy to make uh, non-contemporary films to portray the past. For obvious was, reasons. For yeah. obvious reasons, it was perceived to be safer. Uh, and also, possibly people wanted to escape into recreations of the past because the present was not a barrel of laughs. So uh, there was demand for those kinds of films and uh, something that would... Um, not have any political agenda attached to it was would also be supported. Where the circumstances of the occupation are perhaps perceptible is in the general tone of the film, which is, so Marcel Carnet is one of the exponents of réalisme poétique, uh, poetic realism, which is a 1930s school of film in France. And what that means is a sort of proto-film noir. So uh, it's often a very fatalistic, uh, pessimistic, tragic stories, often love stories, not always, uh, and, and centering on characters who are uh, not upper class characters, but ordinary people, ordinary people and their joys and pains and, and then often impossible love. So the film is permeated with this air of tragedy. It's about um, a mime, a famous real life mime called uh, De Bureau, who in a way invented the art of mime, and a tragedian, an actor called Frédéric Lemaitre, who was one of the great figures of the French stage in the 19th century. And then there are a couple of Lesner, the poet assassin, the darling of the surrealists, also features in the film. And they're all in love with this woman called Garance, who is also a performer. 
Uh, and it's about how everyone's in love with the wrong person. And in the end, uh, happiness is completely unattainable. So that's where perhaps there's a, <laughs> well, yes, so, there's a melancholy there that is to do with the circumstances. So uh, uh, just one other question on the, on the wartime context, which is that um, this, this image of Paris, it's the Paris of La Boheme, the, the Paris of the stage and of doomed love and of, of beautiful courtesans and all that kind of thing. I mean, that is, that is a very popular foreign perspective on French, on Parisian culture. Do you think that, was there any kind of awareness of that, that this was about reminding the world beyond France that, you know, La Belle Paris still was still there, that she was still this city of great actors and prostitutes and courtesans and aristocrats and paupers and bohemians, that that was still going on, do you think? I think that's certainly true. I think it's very aware of the myth of Paris and of promoting and recreating immersively um, that vanished great old Paris of, uh, as you say, culture, love, uh, uh, living on the edge, the underbelly of society, aristocratic salons, everything is in it. So in that sense, it's very Balzac and quite Dickensian also. You know, it has everything. And the script was written by the um, the poet Jacques Prévert, wasn't yes. it? Does that suggest to us that, um, that film, is that a sign of film being regarded as one of the high arts in France in a way that perhaps it isn't in well, certainly not in Britain, I suppose. I mean, obviously, great American writers have worked for Hollywood, kind of uh, people like William Faulkner and so on. But um, Prévert writing the film, was film from the very beginning seen as something that, you know, very clever, cultivated, sort of artistic people would, would work in? Or, and, 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 and does French cinema, do you think, or does, it, does it run the whole spectrum still from the most populist to the most highbrow? Interesting question. Yes, so the, Jacques Prévert is a, a poet uh, in his own right. He was also uh, a screenwriter and he worked with Carnet several times. So he was he wrote dialogue, beautiful, witty dialogue that the, the courtiers in uh, Ridicule might have approved of because it's, it's often very uh, beautifully, beautifully crafted. And at the same time, direct, limpid, unpretentious. I think that's the genius of it. And perhaps that is... Um, the French are less obsessed with class, I think, than the British. I mean, I don't know, we can argue about that, but I would say French mm. cinema is less obsessed with class than British cinema, which is perhaps a slightly different thing. But, uh, and that's partly, I think, because the uh, the dream is, is, is always to create something that is uh, a beautiful product that can be enjoyed by the majority of people. There are exceptions, and then, you know, we've there will be an example towards the end. There are, of course, e exceptions, and, and French cinema can also be hyper pretentious and very, very sort of over engineered. But the mainstream, uh, high and low and middle brow, is trying to give everyone the best. So that's the idea. A bit like food, really, yeah. same attitude towards food. Well, there is certainly nothing pretentious or over-engineered about this podcast or this episode. Um, and I think we should take a break at this point because we're now halfway through your list, Muriel. Uh, and when we come back, let's go from six through to 10. So à bientôt. Hi. 
I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Avenue once again, everybody. Uh, we are uh, charging through the history of France in ten films with our guest Muriel Zaga, the film critic, who has given us five splendid films. I have to say, having listened to you on those five films, Muriel, it makes me want to watch them. And um, in the case of La Reine Margot, rewatch them uh, immediately. Um, but you've got some great ones coming up, haven't you? Because I can see the list, and and your next one is particularly interesting, I think, because of the controversy around it and because a lot of people probably don't even know it exists. And so that is um, J'accuse, is a French title by Roman Polanski, but it has a British connection, doesn't it? It does, because um, it's an adaptation. So it's about the Dreyfus affair. Um, So we are now, from the Paris of Balzac, we've moved to the Paris of Proust, uh, the late 19th century. The the film is, um, the the script is adapted from a novel by Robert Harris called, I think, An Officer and a Spy. And I had not known, actually, I recently found out that Harris wrote the novel as a result of a conversation with Polanski. And then they decided to make the film together and make the novel into a film. But they both shared an interest in the Dreyfus affair. They're friends. Uh, and so that's how the the novel came to to be. And then later the film. So the genius... So for people who, who don't, mm, yes, just for people who don't know, because a lot of people won't, the Dreyfus affair, um, do you want to explain that? Or do you want, well, are you happy explaining it? I, if I make any mistakes, you, the historian, can correct <laughs> I'm me. I'm sure you won't. <laughs> uh, so this is something that happened in, um, I think, 1894, thereabouts. An officer in the French artillery called uh, Capitaine 
Alfred Dreyfus, who was uh, French but from Alsace and also Jewish, crucially, was accused, well, found guilty, accused and then found guilty of treason, of uh, specifically um, uh, passing on uh, military secrets to the Germans. And uh, he was then um, expelled uh, from the army. He was, uh, there was a, so yes, I'll get on to that afterwards, but he was then uh, sent uh, to Devil's Island in French Guiana like for lifelong uh, imprisonment. Kind of living death, wasn't it? A living death. And uh, the film opens with uh, a famous scene of his literal degradation in the courtyard of the École Militaire in Paris, where uh, all his... Um, uh, Epaulette and... Epaulette, uh, Epaulette yeah. Galon, the gilt buttons on his uniform, everything is torn from his uniform, and then the soldier who is doing all this to him breaks his sword on his knee, breaks it in half. And at that point, Dreyfus uh, exclaims that he is innocent and that uh, it's a terrible miscarriage of justice. Vive l'armée, vive la France, he says. Uh, The genius of the film, which is, of course, the genius of Harris's novel, is to tell the story centering not around Dreyfus himself, who is a tricky character because he was quite a chilly sort of cold fish, you know, he's not very charismatic, or uh, centering around Émile Zola, who the French writer who wrote the open letter to the president uh, entitled J'accuse, which outed the whole story in newspapers, but on another officer called um, Georges Picard, who was Dreyfus's commanding officer at the time when he was first convicted, and who is then promoted as head of the Secret Service, uh, the French Secret Service, and in the course of that, of his new activities, discovers that actually Dreyfus is was telling the truth, that he was innocent, that he's been framed, that uh, proofs, proofs of his guilt have been fabricated, and he sets about to set the record straight. And what's interesting is that this Picard character, who is played by Jean Dujardin, so Jean Dujardin is perhaps today the biggest male French star. He's very, you know, he's tall, dark and handsome and very debonair, but it, here he plays against type because he's playing what I would call uh, un salaud, so a thoroughly unpleasant individual, who is himself a staunch anti-Semite. And of course, Perfectly mainstream opinions to have for a man of his class and background in the army at the time. But he's not, this is not a Hollywood scenario where, you know, he starts off perhaps a little bit anti-Semitic, but then he gets to know Dreyfus and they become yeah. best buddies and, you know, yeah. he warms to the plight Thank of Thank you, Alfred. Not- Thank you for being yeah. there. <laughs> <laughs> it's not like that. Yeah. <laughs> What drives him is his love of the army and his sense of duty. And so uh, he wants to um, exculpate Dreyfus, bring him back for another trial, and also make sure that the actual culprit, the man who was selling military information to the Germans, a major Esterhazy, is uh, uh, pursued instead. I haven't seen the film, but I have read uh, Robert Harris's book. I think I read it in proof before it came out and I remember it was it was one of those reading experiences that sort of stays with you because I started reading it you know at sort of six o'clock at night and was still reading it at two o'clock in the morning or something I was even though I knew the story it I think it's by far Robert Harris's best book and I was absolutely riveted but the tragedy is that the film hasn't had 
um, the exposure that it should have done because, of course, Roman Polanski is a very controversial figure because of his own sort of sexual history and so on. But is that that's presumably not the case in France, Muriel, or mm. is it? No, the, uh, it's interesting because in terms of history in the making, uh, France had its is having really perhaps its Me Too moment with a slight lag after Le Monde Anglo-Saxon, as ever. We're always sort of chasing the, running after the train slightly. And the release of the film coincided with that. So um, I won't go into the Polanski affair, which is a separate thing. But yes, Polanski uh, admitted to having had non-consensual sex with an underage girl in the 70s. And he's still really a fugitive from American justice for that crime. He's been tried, but he hasn't been in prison. He jumped bail, didn't he? He jumped bail and he's never been back to the US. So he's now 88 years old, maybe, Polanski, 87 years old. And this is still hanging over his head like a sword of Damocles. And occasionally it's sort of wheeled out, you know, again. And this was a case in point, partly because the Dreyfus affair is the story of, you know, an innocent man being unjustly uh, hounded by, uh, by the authorities, by the media and so on. It's, so there was um, disapproval and resistance in, in, in France to the film being lionized at the Venice Festival, for example. And a lot of people, I mean, people in the press said they would not promote the film, they would not talk about it. Uh, planned interviews with some of the stars in the movie, Jean Dujardin, uh, Louis Garel, who plays Dreyfus, who's also a famous French actor, were cancelled. So there was certainly a reaction. This is all happening in a wider uh context in France, where for the first time in my own living history, the penny is dropping in French society that it is not okay to pursue underage girls uh, with sexual intent. Because actually, the Polanski affair, they happened in America, in a French context, happened in a context where it was all perfectly acceptable and even applauded, that young women, nymphettes, lolitas, were fair game. And that it is, it was hilarious to pursue them, capture them, seduce them. Well, also, so that's one aspect of French seduction, which is at the darker end of the. I mean, spectrum. there's also with Polanski. There's also uh, Sharon Tate. He he was married to Sharon Tate, wasn't he? And and she yeah. obviously was very brutally murdered by. Um, the Manson family. By the Manson family. Mm. So uh, it's there is this kind of very dark background to it but um i I haven't seen it i've like dominic i read the book and kind of read it in a single sitting so i love the book um but i feel quite inspired to go and see the film now i must say Um, just one quick question about dreyfus if i may um the dreyfus affair you would have thought was kind of closed until recently but am i not right in thinking that there's so for example the um the sort of hard right candidate sort of gadfly eric Zemmour. Um, who is himself Jewish. Yeah, very odd. Um, <laughs> unbelievably said at the beginning of the recent French presidential campaign, well, maybe Dreyfus was was guilty. Maybe it wasn't as simple as that. Maybe, you know, he wasn't framed. Do, do many people in France think that, Muriel? I should think not. I think it's a very marginal niche uh, opinion. Zemmour also thinks that the Vichy regime was marvellous and did its best to well, save he, he also wants French to, Jews. He wants to annex Northern Italy, doesn't he? So he has a, a raft of, <laughs> yes, of controversial that. opinions. Yeah. He is an eccentric figure. <laughs> yes. yes, so I think you, that is sort of lunatic French, yeah. I'd say. Okay, uh, okay. Yeah. so, so uh, number seven. Number seven is... Uh, La Grande Illusion, the Renoir 
um, film about the Great War, Grand Illusion, which was made in 1937. So it was made between the two wars, but it is a film that's looking back to Renoir's own experience in the war uh, as a pilot. Uh, he was a pilot. And so it's about, it's, it's very, it's perhaps the most famous of all my uh, choices. It's the great humanist anti-war uh, film about friendship. It's about uh, French prisoners who escaped from German prison prisons during the, the First World War. And the thing about it is that they, so at the beginning, we have three characters, an aristocrat called uh, De Boildieu, and um, an engineer, a working class man, by, who's played by Jean Gabin, who's called Maréchal, and then a Jewish, uh, rich bourgeois Jewish character called um, Rosenthal, played by Marcel Dalio. Marcel Dalio always played Jews or foreigners in the cinema of the 30s. That was his stock in trade. And Jean Gabin is perhaps the greatest French film star ever, bigger than Brigitte Bardot, bigger than anyone, who worked all his life. Reincarnated as a dog <laughs> in Dix <des> Passant. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. The, in the series about the talent agency in yeah, Paris. Yeah. Yes, the, one of the directors has a dog called Jean yeah. Gabin, and that's just very telling. Yeah. So Gabin is um, the incarnation of the French working man and the a kind of figure of authenticity. He's, he's about real France, France profonde, uh, and also a, a very glamorous figure in his own right, because he, during the war, the Second World War, he did joined the Free French in North Africa. He won the Croix de Guerre. So, you know, he's, he's an interesting, glamorous figure. So in the film, these prisoners who are a sort of ragtag, uh, motley crew of people who have nothing in common will subsume their class differences, their racial differences between them and, and, and find, you know, um, friendship and, and then manage to escape the Germans by helping each other out. So the aristocratic character sacrifices himself for the other two men so that they can escape. Uh, and then they eventually make it into Switzerland. And in the meantime, there's also a love story between Jean Gabin, the French, um, soldier character and a young German war widow. Uh, so that's an, also an interesting element of the film. There are a couple of things interesting about the Germans, aren't they? So there's his affair, I saw this years ago, his 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 relationship with the widow. But there's also your classic, I mean, something that we in Britain specialise in in war films, your classic noble, no, I mean, literally noble, sort of German flying ace, <laughs> sort of a gallant enemy, you know, very chivalrous and all that sort of thing. Um, and that's quite striking, given that this is, what, 1937? The clouds of war overhead. Did but you just also, say the clouds of war overhead? I did. Wow. I'd like a Tom, you know, two hundred odd episodes and <laughs> I think one to of give the first us credit, I've dipped into I've dipped into my deathless prose. To give us credit. <laughs> I think that's the first time we've ever used the phrase the clouds of war. Sorry, the Dominic. Cloud, Go I'm on. gonna start an episode with that. I'll start an episode with that Tom. Um uh, we're only twenty years from the Great War itself. Obviously, the the experience of the Great War for France even more, far more seismic than it was for, for Britain. So was that controversial, would you say, to have, a, to have sort of, you know, good Germans, as it were? Or, or by the 1930s, was, was that not an issue? I don't think it was an issue yet. When the film was re-released in 1946, then there was a lot of resistance to the idea of the good Germans. But of course, um, the Germans portrayed in the film are not Nazis. 
yet <laughs> there no. from yeah. the past. So yes, there's an amazing scene where it is about class, where the the gallant German officer who is played by a divine Austrian actor called Eric von Stroheim and the French aristocrat. So he's captured these French prisoners. And in front of the other two men, the two aristocrats, the German and the French, start to speak together in English, literally above the heads of the other two men. And they speak about horses and going to Maxims in Paris and, you know, in a way that signals the sort of fraternity of the upper classes that transcends frontiers. And so, you know, do, do you know, so, so the figure of the good German also appears in, um, what is it, the life and death of, is it Colonel Blimp? Colonel Life Blimp. Death of Colonel Blimp. Yeah. Mm. Do you do you, think, yes. do you know was that was that an influence was um, uh, Renoir's film an influence on that because that came out actually came out in the war didn't it I think that was because Churchill was suspicious of that of, of the portrayal of the good German in that but rather similar character rather similar character from what's his name from Kutschdorf or something Theo like Theo that, yes. von Kutsch something wonderful played by Anton Wilbrook another divine Austrian actor so Colonel Blimp is it, it's it's about a, a, a a, British, a kind of stereotypical yes, British officer who becomes friends with this German officer and, and it, it's his story through the war and then after it up to the Second World War. Um, but it's an archetype that runs through the way that, that the British in particular, I think, think about the, the World Wars. There were always these sort of Klaus von Stauffenberg, Rommel, Rommel yeah. figures, you know, these noble adversaries with monocles or something um, who know, you know, who who... Who who might as well have been to a public school and they know how to and ride often a horse did. and they <laughs> when yeah and they kind of would and scholars. they would have, Tom to pick up a theme that many of our listeners were familiar with they would absolutely have worn the right shoes they absolutely would on a yacht well I mean we talked yeah. about Robert Harris that that's exactly that character features in the um, the recent one about the Mun- about Mun- uh, the Munich conference uh, yes. Yes, that's right. So anyway, but we're, we're... He loves a good German. We're now we're now spiralling off into Britain, so for, for which I apologise. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that is uh, uh, La Grande Illusion. Uh, and number eight. Number eight is also a film... Um, well, it's a film that was made um, under the occupation like Les Enfants du Paradis, but it's a very different film. So this is called Le Corbeau, The Raven. And it's a film by uh, someone called Clouseau, but not that Clouseau. I know, Dominic. <laughs> Dominic's ears pricking up there. <laughs> Sorry. I did, I did once write about this Clouseau, the director who spelled Z-O-T for the Times Literary Supplement. And I spelled his name as in the Inspector Clouseau. And there was a letter. Oh no. <laughs> oh no. Pulling me up, which I should really frame and put on my yes. wall to remind yeah. me of not making such silly mistakes. So Henri Georges <laughs> Henri Georges Clouseau, Z O T, um, is a wonderful uh, French filmmaker of the thirties, forties, fifties. And Le Corbeau is um a film that was made within a, a German studio called, um, I think, Universal or something like that during the war in 1943. And it is about, it's a contemporary story. So it's set in a contemporary setting, although it is careful to say in the opening title, a small town here or elsewhere. So it's not too specific about being set in France even. But the setup is um, a small town, a big village where Soon after the arrival of a new doctor called Dr. Germain, who is played by the same actor as the aristocrat in uh, La Grande Illusion, Pierre Freinet, people in the town begin to receive horrible poison pen letters. So 
Corbeau in French means raven, but it's also a word for blackmailer. And these letters threaten to reveal deep-held secrets like uh, illegitimacy, abortion, adultery, you know, all kinds of terrible things that people don't want others to know about. The Corbeau uh, disseminates these letters everywhere, and this uh, starts a kind of collective hysteria, really. Um, it's based on a real case, on a real-life case, which didn't happen at that time, but about 20 years previously in Tulle, I think, in France, there was an epidemic of poison pen letters. Um, so that's what inspired Clouseau. So in a way, it's a kind of Miss Marple setup to begin with, because yeah. it's a small town. The moving finger. The moving the finger. So there's, you know, there's the postmaster, there's the headmaster of the school, there's the nurse who works at the hospital. All these characters are there. Uh, and there's a, the presence of evil, the very real presence of evil of this unseen, deranged personality who is uh, poisoning the minds uh, of the town. But Muriel, presumably, I mean, lurking at the back of this is the fact that there are informers. Um, yeah, it must yeah. be an occupation film. Yeah. I mean, it's so obvious, isn't it? So well, how, how did it get past the census? Because presumably this is, this is about uh, people being denounced for being Jewish or... It, it is. So the, the word we're looking for here is délation, which is a word that is almost exclusively associated with the occupation in France. And that means uh, informing on people, because that was really the national sport during the occupation, encouraged both by the Germans and by the Vichy regime to encourage people to inform on their neighbours. Is there a communist hiding somewhere? Are there people harbouring Jews? You know, and people used to write uh, anonymous letters denouncing their neighbours, sometimes with a view to appropriating their shops or their house or, you know, their business or whatever. So it's a thoroughly unpleasant form of collaboration. And the film, the film is a sort of metaphor of that. It doesn't describe that behaviour directly because there's no political context, there's no Gestapo, there's no sign of an occupying force, but that's because all that unpleasantness has been internalised. So the surveillance is happening within the community and uh, the atmosphere of paranoia, suspicion, the, the, the very fallen world that he describes is the world of the occupation, but it's not said directly. That's how he did it. I was about to say, there's a twist though, isn't there? Because when you sent us the list and Le Corbeau was on it and I looked it up, I thought how amazing that this film came out in 1943. But so, so it's obviously about the informers and so on but how closely it anticipates what happens after the liberation when people are, when women are having their heads forcibly shorn and people are informing on them for help for collaborating. So, so then there's an, another, yeah, exactly. Yes. You, oh, you, you gave that German, you know, lunch, you slept with that German guy and that, and, and the, then the, the sort of, again, it's the same story, but from a completely opposite angle. Exactly right. So it flips. The, the thing about women, just a quick word about women in the film that is so fascinating, is that there's a bad girl character, classic bad girl, femme fatale, amazing, played by an actress called Ginette Leclerc, who's sort of sex on legs, really. And she, she is portrayed sympathetically, whereas there's another female character who is a sort of walking poster girl for the Vichy regime, you know, the ideal of Vichy womanhood, who turns out to be a complete psychopath. So that's quite daring. And Vichy did yeah, not like yeah. that. Uh, and then, as uh, Dominic mentioned, then later on, after the liberation, the disapproval against the film was of a different hue. It was yeah. no longer the Vichy authorities thinking that it was an immoral film that attacked family values, that attacked Catholicism, all of that. It was 
the resistance forces, the, the Free French, thinking that it was a demoralizing film and in itself an act of collaboration because it portrayed France in a terrible yeah. Um, yeah. Totally sort of way. That is endless story. Endless stuff. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Okay, so we've got two to go. Um, this is so. I've now got eight films. I'm very keen to watch this evening. Um, good, good. <laughs> um, two so, more. So this one, uh, you, this one you were about to announce. I watched last night. Uh, oh, oh. <laughs> it's fun, isn't it? <laughs> it's it's tremendous. It was not at all what I was expecting. Good, so, good, good. Um, so, what were you expecting? Uh, I I was expecting. Well, so so it's La Grande Vaudouille, which I think means the the kind of the big stroll, the big kind of perambulation. Um, and I just read a very cursory account on the, uh, I brought it up on Amazon and they said three British pilots get shot down uh, and it's about trying to get them back to England. And so I was expecting a war film, which it is a war film. But it's a war film in the way that, well, uh, you know, Asterix is about the Roman occupation of Gaul. <laughs> Yeah. In, in that, or Inspector Clouseau is about yeah, crime in no, the mean streets of Paris. Nobody dies and there is absolutely no threat that anyone's going to die in it. And people in Britain will may well have, have watched or heard of Allo Allo, which is, again, set against the occupation. Again, it, 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 it deals massively in national stereotypes. And although you have the backdrop of the Wehrmacht and the Gestapo kind of lurking, you know, e even they are kind of lovable clowns uh so <laughs> this is so this was made what 1960s wasn't it i mean it's a very 1960s yes. and all i will say for british is that the, the 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 chief british pilot is played by terry thomas which tells you everything you need to know about how the british are portrayed <laughs> so the, the director of this film which was made in 1966 gerard Ouri, absolutely wanted terry thomas i for say the bar. shower all that kind of because, stuff. Tom, you're very good. At, you, you make a very good Terry Thomas. He, he wanted him for that, for his voice, but also for his moustache and for yeah. his gappy teeth. Well, the, because the moustache, he, 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 he drops into the zoo, doesn't he? He kind of drops into the penguin enclosure and his moustache is very bedraggled and the zookeeper rescues him and kind of signals, go, go and shave your moustache off immediately because you could not look more British. Couldn't look more like an RAF pilot. So the story is broadly that these uh, English um, parachutists land in various parts of Paris because their plane is shot down by the Germans and they are rescued by this very unlikely pairing of complete no-hoper uh, Frenchmen played by two of the greatest comic actors in France, uh, Bourville. And this is in the days where people had a one name, yeah. name, you know, stage name. And Louis de Funès, who is perhaps the greatest comic actor France has ever known and is still utterly revered. <laughs> so they play um, completely diametrically opposite uh, types. Uh, one is a very easygoing uh, painter, decorator, uh, naive, sort of childlike man, incredibly kind. And the de Funès character is a very choleric, as is always the case with his uh, characters, uh, uh, conductor, music, music With an conductor. extraordinary wig. With an extraordinary wig, which he has to, I mean, so again, they um, they need to, uh, they, they become embroiled with the English. And so they're not really very willing resistance. They are, or, you know, they're, they're not ideological resistance. They are uh, sort of embroiled in the whole thing and they end up uh, agreeing to help the, the British get to the free zone while on the run from the Germans. But as you said, 
the Germans in, in the film represent a very mild peril indeed, because although they, they're shooting sometimes, uh, they don't appear to hit any target. They, it's mm. almost as if they're made of cardboard. You know, if you push them over, they, they fall over and they are hilariously obtuse and stupid and easy to uh, bamboozle. And the as way are, they speak as French are the British. Is, of course, I mean, some, you know, to a degree as well. So. Yes. So here the French are. Uh, these are ordinary Frenchmen. The comedy comes from their opposing temperaments. So there's a scene where De Funès, the sort of upper class character, uh, tricks the other man into carrying him on his shoulders, you know, like a horse. And he says, uh, you give me a ride and I'll give you a ride later because uh, his shoes hurt him, his feet are hurt. Hurting. So that's the kind of class warfare you, you experience. But, but also they, um, they end up in all kinds of comedy of errors situations with the Germans. There's a hilarious scene where they walk into an inn. For some reason, they're wearing, uh, Pelloin German uniforms and they don't make very convincing Nazis. And then they walk into this dark room at the inn. The lights are turned on and there's a huge birthday party given for a Nazi officer. So the room is full of Nazis in full regalia and they have to somehow Blend in. Not and they all, a word um, of they all kind of sit down and go jumping around the room on their chairs, <laughs> don't they? Which is a, a very famous scene. Um, <laughs> yes. Gather. So it, it's a relief that film, after all the the darkness of the but, occupation, and it's about healing with humour. Yeah. yeah, I well, right. I, I, but, but I wondered yeah. as as a kind of British viewer, what it re- actually reminded me of was um, Asterix in Britain quite similar where it's the French and the British kind of teaming up and the Romans are, uh, you know, a bit like the Nazis. That's why I kind of alluded to it. But I always thought that there was something in that about, um, about the, the attitude of the French, the, the kind of mingled respect and resentment of, of the British that they were in a position to carry on fighting when, when France had to surrender. Do you think there's any element of that in, in this film? Yes, I'm sure there is. And I think there is in the French psyche too, actually, uh, which explains also, you know, reactions to Brexit, for example, because very, this is a very broad brush uh, statement, but it is a very different way to be as a nation to have been, to have won the war. The British won the war with the Americans, but nevertheless, they won the war. The French kind of won the war, but actually were first invaded, had years of a fascist style regime where people collaborated actively with the enemy and have to feel some gratitude to the American and the British, gratitude that is sort of never-ending. And the gratitude is not always a very easy emotion, no, historically really speaking. it really makes you hate the people that you feel grateful mm. for. Yeah. 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 Well, de Gaulle. De Gaulle is the classic yeah. example of this, right? I mean, de Gaulle is, a, is the living embodiment of that sort of he, – he clearly at some level does feel gratitude, but also he feels an enormous sense of – Annoyance and resentment that he thinks, through no fault of its own, France was put in. And I think, I think, you know, having watched that film yesterday, I think there would be scope for a, a, a brilliant comedy about De Gaulle. Um, oh, I mean, he's not normally thought of as a, but it would be. Could you not argue, Tom, that at some level the Inspector Clouseau films are precisely that? <laughs> well, yes. I mean, because Clouseau's sense of dignity, yes. right? Yes, I mean, I know perhaps. this is ludicrous to be mentioning Clouseau, but his sense of dignity, he really believes in France, by the way, Inspector Clouseau, and he believes in his job at the Sûreté, and he believes in all that. And there is a sort of stereotype in Anglo-Saxon culture of the, and when I say Anglo-Saxon, obviously I mean Anglo-American, um, of, of, the, of the Frenchman who believes himself to be the soul of dignity, but to British eyes looks faintly ridiculous. But that's the brilliant thing case. about this. That's the brilliant thing about this with the with the um, the, the maestro 
who mm. is constantly insisting on his dignity and his wig is constantly flying off and he's constantly having to wear the wrong shoes wonderfully great I, I, <laughs> you know, very much a I theme cannot, of this podcast <laughs> i cannot recommend louis de funès movies highly enough because there's something so paroxysmic about all his performances and i yeah. remember recently watching another film with him in it and thinking, I wonder how he died. And he died of a heart attack. And actually, that's no surprise because I think he was always performing Wired absolutely up. at full capacity. Yes, yeah. it's extraordinary. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, that's I, I love that film. And I, w- I don't think I, w- I would ever have watched it if it hadn't been on this list. <laughs> so I can't thank you enough. It was it was fantastic. <laughs> okay. So our Good. final our final film. Uh, it was such a barrel of laughs. By, uh, <laughs> by Jean-Luc, Jean-Luc Godard meeting up with Dostoevsky. And... <laughs> Well, it's not a comic. It's not a comedy, is it? (laughs) So this was made very soon after La Grande Vedouille. It released a year later in 67, (laughs) crucially. So the year before the Soissons Huitard do their stuff. But uh, many people say there's something prophetic about this film. So this is a film by Jean-Luc Godard, who, yes, is a, a very serious experimental filmmaker. He is technically Swiss, but I think I can claim him. Because you know he worked in he works in France mostly, and and this film was made in Paris for the French cast. So we're not going to quibble about the Swiss and the French here. Um, it's a sort of um, a premonition of May '68, and and it's rooted in reality in the sense that so it's about it's about les grandes vacances. It's summer, and a group of uh, French students, bourgeois students for the uh, main part, uh, hold up in a, a very bourgeois apartment in Paris. And they form a Maoist commune there. Made that call. Yeah. Because Such 1960s French behaviour. The 60s in France was the red decade. It was the decade of le gauchisme, where uh, the sort of fringe left, extreme left, began to sort of fragment a- away from the Parti Communiste, you know, as a completely different way of being on the left, more internationalist, I mean, a different way, you know, with different allegiances. Uh, in brackets, what's happened in between is uh, in between the Second World War and this time, I mean, is the Algerian War, which is very little treated subject in French cinema. Except for, for, mm-hmm. except for the, the, the classic um, about the Battle of Algiers. Yes. But that's not French, is it? Or is it French? Is that, it's, he, the director of that was Italian, I think, wasn't he? Ponticorvo? I think so. Ah, uh, so that doesn't, that wouldn't count. Okay. Well, there's there's very there's a lot of resistance still to telling that story. So that's a whole other, you know, the whole colonial story of France is a is a whole other and, podcast. And what, and what was the, what was the film? Uh, was it Hanukkah? About oh, yes, Keshe. Keshe, yes, about mm. the the kind of the missing yes boy. That but, uh, anyway, uh, we're, we're sorry. We're, but, we're but again, told obliquely. So this is this is a time in the French left on the French left where. The Communist Party has not been supportive of the Algerian insurrection during the Algerian War. And so uh, younger uh, people on the left are very disapproving of that and, uh, and think that they are uh, revisionist. You know, so the whole film is, about, is essentially readings from the Little Red Book. You know, they're Maoists. So uh, Mao's uh, Little Red Book is everywhere in the apartment. And the, the whole thing is styled in a wonderful pop 60s way you know Godard loved uh, primary colors uh, they focus the mind so uh, the interior of the apartment is painted red and there's uh, blue and yellow and then um, some this kind of Desi Bao uh, effect of um, slogans painted on the walls um, there's one that says 
uh, we must replace confused ideas with clear images, for example. So to what degree is this a serious film is uh, difficult to fathom because in a way, uh, Godard is trying really hard not to be a reactionary. He's, t- <laughs> he's right. trying okay, so, so hard. So I was asking you about that. So this is modeled on Dostoevsky's great novel, The, the Devils, The Possessed, whatever. And Dostoevsky, I mean, he was the reactionary. He's reactionary. He was very hostile I mean, to all this one stuff. of the most, arguably, you could, uh, you could claim one of the great greatest reactionary books ever written and not just that tom margaret thatcher 10 years after godard makes this film margaret thatcher is reading um the possessed or the devils call it what you will and hugely approving of it and saying this is a tremendous warning against um against the dangers of socialism and stuff so so how is it that yeah i mean i know what you're going to ask um, well actually tom you ask a question well, i was going to say why is why is godard is a yeah. man of the left adapting this unbelievably reactionary novel that that is all well, reaction, I, it, it's profounder than that. I mean, it is, I, it is one of the great novels. It's one of, and it has this, this very, very prophetic vision of where Leninism and Stalinism will go. But it's, it's, it's not a, it's not a, a, a novel that a, a man of the left, I, I would imagine, would feel comfortable adapting. Huh. Uh, tricky. I think the film, especially with the you know, distance, time has passed, um, is a, Great example of a kind of double think, to use an Orwellian term, on the part of Godard is that he, he is all at once uh, being um, supportive of what these young people are trying to do. And among other things, they plan a political assassination, as is the case in the Dostoevsky, uh, and also uh, critical of their endeavor. Um, so, for example, uh, one of the characters, the she's called Véronique, who is played by Anne Wiesemski, who was Godard's uh, love interest in real life and was herself a student at uh, Nanterre, the hotbed of where May 68 was going to explode uh, at the time. Uh, she says, uh, I can't really connect with the working classes, you know, because after all, my parents are bankers, she says in the film. <laughs> and there is also a wonderful scene where there's a traveling shot that travels through three or four windows, you know, shot on the balcony, looking into the flat. And so at the left and hand side of the room, a Maoist activist, a real life Maoist activist called, uh, Omar, uh, what was his name? Omar Diop, I think a Senegalese man, uh, is lecturing the others about essentially uh, the class struggle, the class struggle. He's reading from the little red book. And then the camera travels to the middle of the room where there's a huge pile of little red books and the others are sitting around it, smoking, listening, taking part in the debate. And then the final window we look through shows uh, a character called Yvonne, who is the proletarian character in the group. So she's not like the others, a pampered sort of bubblegum revolutionary. She's from the countryside. She finds it very difficult to connect with all the complicated concepts that the others talk about. And what she does in that scene is clean shoes. So she's cleaning shoes while they're listening to the lecture. And throughout the film, she's always working. She's washing up, making tea. She even turns to prostitution to fund the commune. That's a very good uh, situation to, <laughs> to find yourself in, I think. Uh, so there's a, Godard is, is at once, I'd say, really politically obtuse. I mean, throughout his career, I would say he really is. And at the same time, he's not without humour and irony and distance. That's perhaps why he can't really make a didactic movie in the way that he would like to. Yeah. Okay, well, didactic movies is... That's everything that, that we want from France. <laughs> <laughs> well, you clearly don't, Tom, because you liked that film with Terry Thomas in it. Yeah, I loved it. <laughs> I loved it. 
uh, and of course the other the other great film about uh, the Algerian War, Day of the Jackal. Yes, Day of the Jackal. Yeah. Um, so uh, just a couple of questions before we before we um, wind up. Uh, so Muriel, the French film industry. I mean, my my sense of it is that it's 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 always felt a bit embattled by Hollywood. Um, is it still alive and well independently, or or is it still is it increasingly threatened by? you know, US streaming services and all those kinds of things? Uh, it is. I mean, everyone's threatened by US streaming services, but the French have quite successfully, um, are quite successfully making content for their own streaming services. So uh, there are, they understood, you know, that perhaps most people now will not be going to the cinema as habitually as they used to, that they'll be watching things on television and streaming things. So there are lots of dramas there's something like uh, Le Bureau des Légendes, for example, which is the one about the Secret Service, um, the French Secret Service, which is great, really a, a wonderful uh, production and is set in Paris, but also takes part in Syria, Algeria, the sort of hotbeds of you know political unrest. Um, I, I think there's a quite a successful, there's been quite a successful adaptation to that and to uh, creating French language product that people are going to want to consume, not necessarily as feature films, but as um, things that you can uh, stream. And the other question I had was, um, so if our listeners only have time to watch one film, I mean, that's tragic. So just one film, what is the film they absolutely have to watch? Otherwise, they can be only one. Yeah. I'm going to be um, a little stern. And I'm going to pick a black and white movie because I think you can never recommend black and white movies enough. People must watch more. Yeah. And so for me, it's Les, Enf Les Enfants du Paradis. It's the, uh, the Children of Paradise because it is uh, so unusual and so perfect as a vision of Frenchness. That would be my choice. But Muriel, would, would there not be a case for saying that uh, Les Enfants du Paradis is the best film? But the ridicule. Is the best film about oh, history. <laughs> <laughs> what, what has ridicule got on you? It's so good. It's honestly, it's the best film about history ever made. Whereas Les Enfants du Paradis, you know, as a film it, about history is slightly, I mean, sentimental, perhaps. Uh, yes. And Petit Peu, I don't know. And Petit Peu, sentimental. <laughs> no, yes, yes, yes. There's a case to be made. It's an impossible question. There's a case to be made for ridicule. There's a case to be made for all of these films. That's the idea. I tried yeah. to it's a brilliant select choice. things. It yeah. all depends on the mood. You know, yeah. La Grande Vadrouille equally. Uh, it would be a shame not to have seen that. Yeah. Well, it's a fact. Yeah, they were brilliant choices. It's a brilliant fantastic choices. list. Uh, and <laughs> and I think a wonderful format. Um, so yeah. thank you so much for suggesting it. Uh, and and for compiling the list and coming on and talking about them so so wonderfully and uh, I hope that uh, I hope that everyone's enjoyed it and um, you know happy viewing because there are some absolute masterpieces. Yeah, go out and watch some French films, and especially go and watch uh, Ridicule. That's, that's, yeah. <laughs> All right. It's also by some way I think the shortest. So <laughs> yeah. Merci beaucoup, Muriel. Merci uh, à vous. Merci, merci à vous, the listeners, and uh, we will see you all next time. Au revoir. Au revoir. Au revoir. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's 
restishistorypod.com.